Let's start this morning by uh, telling you guys a story. Um, when Rosie and I uh, lived in Manchester, uh, it was about uh, 10 years ago now, we were really good friends with a couple called Kath and Alex. And um, they were a, a couple that we saw regularly, we hung out with, we had fun with in, in lots of different ways. They were also a couple who, who loved Jesus and uh, were always a great encouragement to be around. But they went through a period where Alex um, decided to leave his job in order to train to be a plumber. Um, and at the same time, Kath was um, training to be a teacher. And um, so they, they made this decision. They felt it was the right time to do it. It was the right thing to do. But it meant that they ended up in a season where financially things were very tight because they were both kind of in this kind of training period. And so he just stepped out of his job and lost that kind of an income stream. And, and one week during this time, Rosie and I decided that we wanted to do something to try and bless these guys. Uh, we loved them. They were our friends. We wanted to do something just to, to kind of um, to give them a treat. And so we decided we'd take them out. Um, and um, because we knew they you know, weren't able to kind of do this thing kind of stuff for themselves, we decided to take them out and so we had a chat with them and we decided together we were going to go to the cinema um, so uh, it was great we had a look at what was on and we found a film uh, with um, Nicolas Cage in it and we'd just seen a film together not long before that with him in it that we'd all really enjoyed so we thought it'd be a good bet so uh, we booked the tickets um, the night came around for us to take him out uh, we went on to the cinema met together there we collected the tickets we got some snacks in you know you're chatting in the kind of the foyer bit all excited looking forward to things expectant about kind of a couple of hours entertainment just enjoying being together and having some fun but none of us were prepared for what the film was actually like. I don't know if we're going to manage it, but I've got a picture for you potentially um, of a, a poster of the film. The film was um, one called um, The Weatherman. Uh, I don't know if anybody has ever seen The Weatherman. Um, if you haven't, then all I can say is don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of a couple of hours entertainment, we ended up sitting through what has to be one of the most quirky films that I have ever seen. And I don't mean quirky in a good way. I mean quirky in a way to the, in the, where it just ends up being completely awful. Um, and the thing was that, that Rosie and I were sat there, and at this time, um, Rosie and I, we just got married, and instead of having a TV license, um, we decided we were going to buy a cinema pass, because um, we were students, we could get it quite cheap. So we went to the cinema all the time. So uh, for, for us, we thought, well, if we were on our own, we'd just get up and walk out. We, we don't want to sit through this. It's just so cringeworthy. It's awful. But we were wanting to give Kath and Alex a night out, and so we were with them. We were together, so we kind of sat there, sat on our hands, and just kind of thought, well, we'll grin and bear it. We'll get through it. What we didn't know at that time, but we discovered later is at the same time, Kath and Alex are sat there thinking, this film is awful. If we were on our own, we would just get up and we would walk out. But Pete and Rosie, they've wanted to bring us here and bless us and give us a good time out. So we'll sit here and we'll sit through it and we'll grin and bear it and we'll wait until the end. You know, what had begun as an evening full of excitement and expectation and fun ended up being nothing like what any of us had expected anything that we'd anticipated. We'd been full of hope for a great night out together, and while it began well, by the end of the film, it had all ended up being a bit of a flop. Now, I wonder how many of you can relate to that kind of an experience. How many of you have had one of those occasions where you've kind of been excited and you've been expecting something, you've been going along to an event or you're going to meet someone, and these great expectations actually end up being nothing like what it actually ends up being. You know, and when things don't match up to our expectations, it nearly always leaves us feeling a little bit kind of insecure and nervous and uncomfortable because we don't actually know what's going to happen next. And maybe like mine and Rose's experience at the cinema, things didn't match up to your expectations and it was a complete letdown. Or maybe actually things didn't match up to your expectations. It ended up being completely different to what you were expecting, but it ended up being way better than anything you were expecting. But either way, I imagine you had to push through that moment 
where you felt a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit nervous, a little bit unsure what was going to happen next and whether you really wanted to be there. Well, we've recently, we've been taking some time to look at um, some encounters with Jesus that people had and how these encounters so often become defining moments in different people's lives and how these encounters with Jesus have the potential to change everything. But one of the things is that when people encounter Jesus, they don't always get what they expect. So often they get far more than they ever imagined. But in that process, there can be a moment where it can be easy to imagine that they felt a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit nervous, a little bit unsure as to what it is that's about to happen next and whether or not they really still wanted to be there. Now, I don't know what kind of expectations you've come here with today. But I want to encourage you that Jesus wants to meet with you. That just as we're going to read about uh, somebody else's encounter with Jesus, so he wants to encounter you. And whatever hopes or expectations you have come here with today, I want to encourage you to be open-minded. To be open to Jesus and what it is that he is wanting to say to you this morning. What it is that he is wanting to, to do in your life. The truth that he is wanting to remind you of or open your eyes to see for the very first time. The encounter with Jesus that we're going to look at this morning is, is one where we see someone come to Jesus with a clear felt need that is obvious to everyone. But the way that Jesus responds to him is nothing like what anybody expects. We're going to look together at Jesus' encounter with a paralytic. It's, uh, I'm going to be reading from Mark 2, uh, verses 1 to 12, and, and this is how it begins. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Okay, so this is, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. People have, have, in this area, they've been hearing about the miracles that Jesus has been doing and all the credible things that have been happening and they're intrigued by him. And so when he comes home to Galilee and he, he turns up in this town, Capernaum, the people there, they want to come and hear what it is that he's got to say. And they want a chance to see one of these miracles, to see one of these great things that, that Jesus has been doing for themselves. And so the house starts to fill up. There are people crowding into the room. There are people crowding around the doorways and craning in through the windows just to try and see Jesus and to, to hear a, gl- a little bit of what it is that he's got to say. And then there are these four guys who, rather than joining the crowd and making sure they get their, their nice seats in front of Jesus and hear what it is that he's got to say, instead they go and find their paralyzed friend. And they tell him that Jesus has come to town and that if they can just get him to Jesus, then he's going to be healed. They pick the man up on his mat and they start to head towards the house where, where Jesus is. And, but it's so crowded that they can't get through. You know, as they try and get near him, the, the crowd, they act like a, this, this bunch of teenage girls who are at the front row of a boy band concert. They're not going to move for anybody. And instead of letting them through, the people are shushing them and are turning to them and they're irritated with them and telling them, look, you're getting in the way of our chance to see Jesus and to hear what Jesus has got to say. And as they look around wondering what to do, one of them looks up and he sees the roof. There's nobody on the roof. So somehow they climb up onto the roof carrying this paralyzed man with them. Now, 
You've got to remember the roofs are the kind of homes that, that, were, that were, were around in that kind of time. They're not the kind of nice tile and slate roofs that we've got today. You know, there would have been flat roofs that were, were made primarily from taking mud and branches and grass and clay and kind of compacting it into this kind of cement that would be about four or six inches think that, thick that they'd lay across the beams of the house. And because of that, what the, the roofs were made of, they, they probably would have replaced them about once every year or so in order to keep the winter rain out. So when we, we read that they made a hole in the roof, it's not like someone coming along with a sledgehammer to your nice slate and tiles that are supposed to last for the next 50 to 75 years. But even so, it's not the kind of thing you'd want somebody doing without your permission and without you being ready to replace it pretty quickly. So you can imagine that the homeowner isn't particularly happy about what it is that's going on. So try and just picture what it is that's happening here. Jesus is inside the house. And he's talking to this great crowd that have packed the place out. And they're straining to hear every word that is that he's got to say. When suddenly... As they're straining to hear all of this, instead they start hearing this scratching and this banging noise coming from the roof. And you can imagine them just kind of turning and looking up at the roof, wondering, what on earth is going on? And and, and then suddenly it switches from that to to bits of twigs and mud starting to fall on people's heads. And this, this place which is already crowded, suddenly everybody's jostling one another and trying to pull back and get to the edges of the room, scared that the roof's about to collapse on top of them. And then light starts to shine through. And people start to get glimpses of these men who were up there, who were, who were tugging and pulling at the roof and making this hole bigger and bigger. And just as suddenly as the light appeared, suddenly it's blocked. And it's blocked and they see this thing coming down and they start to make out it looks like a mat and something's on it. And imagine things from the perspective of the guy who's paralyzed, lying on this mat. He's looking up. And all he can see is these four guys there with these ropes lowering him down. He's got no idea what's going on in the room below him. He can't see Jesus. He can't see the crowd. He can't see any of that which is happening. And then as he gets lowered down, he gets to be eye level with Jesus. Eye level with the rest of the people. And they're just staring at him. Wondering, what on earth is what going on? And then there's this one guy trapped in the corner of the room by the crowd. It's so full that he can't get out. But he's shouting and ranting and raving at guys on the roof. saying, you've got to fix this mess. And then there's these four guys looking down nervously. They managed to get their friend to Jesus and they're just waiting to see what's going to happen next. Everyone in the room, everyone outside of the room, they're craning to see what's going on. This is the moment that they've been waiting for. What is it that's going to happen next? This is the moment. They, they know that this man, he's not, they've not gone to all this effort. They've not made a hole in the roof, lowered him down and gone to all of this effort just so he can get a prime seating position and listen to what Jesus has got to say. It's obvious to everyone why the paralyzed man is there. It's obvious to everyone why his friends have gone to so much trouble. He's there to be healed. And so they're waiting with bated breath, with great expectation. This is the moment they've been waiting for. They're going to get to see a miracle. And Jesus looks up and he sees the four friends who were who up there, who were lowered these ropes down. These guys who were convinced and have gone to all this effort, have broken every rule just to get their friend. They're convinced that if they do that, that he's going to be healed. So they don't have to worry about pulling him back up again. He's going to walk out. And Jesus sees their faith. He sees the faith of these four friends. And what does he say? Well, in verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, 
your sins are forgiven. You know, Jesus looks up at these guys on the roof. And he says, good news, guys, I've seen your faith. And he looks down at the guy who's paralyzed, lying on the mat at his feet. And he says, good news, I've seen your greatest need. Your sins are forgiven. We can imagine the friends on the roof at this moment and the crowd of people who are there and the paralytic himself looking at Jesus and being a bit confused and going, what on earth is going on? Jesus, don't you get why this guy is here? Don't you get why we've gone to all of this trouble? Don't you get why we've made a hole in the roof and we've lowered him down? Everybody knows why he's here. We brought him to you because we've heard stories of these great miracles and these great healings. We're not here for forgiveness. We're here for a miracle. We would all of this so that we could see a man walk out of here. They came into this encounter with Jesus with these great expectations and nothing was going the way they thought it would. And then there's these other group of, of people who aren't just there feeling confused. They're completely gobsmacked at what Jesus has just said. They're almost offended at the fact that Jesus would dare to tell this guy that his sins are forgiven. So it says in verses 6 to 7, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, we read that these, these guys are teachers of the law. These are the experts. These are the guys who explain to everybody else how you get to be forgiven. And these people are standing there thinking, Who does this guy think he is? You can't just tell someone your sins are forgiven. It doesn't work that way. It's not that simple. Receiving forgiveness is complicated and it's expensive. First of all, what you've got to do, you've got to go and buy a spotless sheep. Or maybe you could get away with, if you've not got a lot of money, buying a pigeon. But you don't really want to buy a pigeon because then everybody knows either you're poor or you're a cheapskate trying to get some cheap forgiveness. Then once you've got your animal, you've got to pack your bags and you've got to travel to Jerusalem to the temple. And then you've got to make an appointment. And you've got to do something that us Brits are known to be very good at. You've got to join a queue. You've got to wait patiently because there's only a handful of experts, the priests who are out there, who are able to, to facilitate this forgiveness. So you have to stand in line and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And then when you finally get to the front of the queue, you've got to make sure that you're still ceremonially clean. And then when you finally get there, the priest, he takes your animal, your spotless sheep or your goat, or if you're unlucky, your pigeon, and he slaughters it. Blood splatters everywhere. And then he turns to you and he says, your sins are forgiven. But even then, it's only temporary. Because a little while later, the inevitable happens and you make another mistake. And you break another one of God's laws and you've got to go through it all again. You've got to go buy another sheep or a pigeon or whatever it is. You know, these teachers of the law are thinking, who do you think you are? Forgiveness is complicated and it is expensive and you've got to wait in line and you've got to go through us. You can't just announce to some stranger who's literally fallen at your feet and you don't know anything about that your sins are forgiven. It's more complicated than that. And if that wasn't enough, there's even more that upsets them about what Jesus has just said. You know, as far as they're concerned... What Jesus has just said is blasphemous. You can't just go around forgiving people for sins that they didn't commit against you. You know, it would have been one thing if this guy had done something against Jesus. They could get their heads around Jesus saying, well, I forgive you for how you've hurt me or what it is that you've done against me. But it, to stand there and forgive him in a blanket kind of way for everything that he's said or thought or done is just incomprehensible to them. 
You know, the only person who can forgive sins in that kind of a way is God. So for the teachers of the law, the very fact that Jesus would dare to say your sins are forgiven to this man was meaning that he was equating himself with God. And all of this ran through the minds of the teachers of the law that quick. So in the aftermath of Jesus' statement, that the paralyzed man's sins are forgiven, you have one group of people who are essentially confused and disappointed. You've got this other group of people who are downright angry with him. And then you have this poor paralytic man lying on the floor who must be thinking, come on guys, this is not what the plan was. Just hoist me up out of here. Jesus has the undivided attention of everyone in that room. Not one of them can believe what is happening. And this is what happens next in verses 8 to 12. It says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. I think this is great. You've got this crowd of people who are all there, and all for one reason or another, they seem like they're about to erupt with questions and accusations. But Jesus doesn't give them a moment, doesn't give them time to say anything. We read immediately, before they had a chance to say a word, Jesus put them on the back foot. He said, I know what you're thinking already. You can't hide anything from Jesus. And so he says, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. Jesus shows them that he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what they'd been expecting when they turned up in that place. He knows exactly what it is that they're thinking now. Jesus knows what the paralyzed man's immediate felt need is and why his friends brought him there. But the thing is that Jesus also knows something that nobody else in that room does. He knows that the paralyzed man's pressing need to be healed isn't actually his primary need. He knows that what seems urgent to him isn't really what is most important. He knows that his felt need isn't really his deepest need. Jesus knows that what he wants the most isn't actually what he needs the most. Jesus knew what the paralyzed man's greatest need was. You see, he could have done exactly what was expected of him in that moment and healed him physically so that he could get up and walk out of that place only for him to go on in a few years and spend eternity in hell. And instead, Jesus went to the very root of sickness and disease that exists within this fallen world and dealt with the sin within the man's life. He dealt with a spiritual problem that this man faced that was far greater than any physical problem. Jesus saw the bigger picture. He knew what is most important is not what happens to us in the few years that we spend on this earth. It's what is going to happen to us for all of eternity. And that's not an easy truth to get your head around, is it? It's not an easy truth to embrace and start to allow to shape your life and your decision making. Because the reality is that all of our lives, they're dominated, aren't they? Dominated by the physical and by the immediate. 
our lives are dominated by our felt needs. Our need, our need for, for feeling healthy and strong and capable and our fear of all of that being stripped away. Our need for financial provision and security and possessions that make us comfortable. Our need for companionship and for people who love us and accept us. Our need to feel that, that uh, we're well thought of by people. You know, in one shape or another, these are all the kind of pressing needs that all of us feel. And it can be easy to allow those pressing needs, those immediate needs to shape our lives and our decision making and to dominate our prayers and to be the things that we bring before God continuously. You know, and before you encounter Jesus, I know how easy it can be to think, well, I'm no worse than anyone else. In fact, I'm better than some. So why do I need forgiveness? And after you encounter Jesus, I know how easy it can be to then to take that forgiveness for granted. But Jesus' point in this encounter is that we need to begin to see as God sees. To gain some eternal perspective. And to realize just what an incredible miracle forgiveness really is. To understand that forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. And it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. And that is, if that's true, it begs a tough question. If all Jesus had to offer, if the only miracle he worked in your life or that of a loved one, if in that moment when you go to the effort to break through the ceiling, to get down in front of him and you look up at him and you say, God, I know you can make me well. If in that moment he chooses to look you in the eye and say, right now your sins are forgiven. Would you be able to accept that? Would that be enough? Because when we see things as God sees things, we realize that he is not nearly as concerned with the physical as he is with the spiritual. He's going to replace this old body with a new improved model in a few years' time. He's going to give those who follow him And trust in him, a glorious new body that will never know pain or suffering or sickness or disease. But where we stand with him spiritually. How we make the most of our time on this earth. How we make the most of the gifts that he's given us. They're the kind of things that have eternal consequences. They're the kind of things that actually, in God's eyes, form our greatest needs. So when Jesus looks at this man and he says, your sins are forgiven, he's fully aware of what everyone is expecting to happen, of the great need they all think that this man has. But ultimately, Jesus knows his greatest need. And so he chooses to work an even greater miracle. The amazing thing is, though, that even though Jesus knows he's already done the greatest miracle and met the man's greatest need, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't dismiss the questions in the hearts of the crowd. He says to them, in order that you might know that I really have forgiven this man of all of his sins. In order that you might know that I really have provided for him spiritually, even though you can't see it. In order that you might know that I have that kind of authority, I'm going to demonstrate my authority by dealing with one of the physical consequences of sin, which is sickness that you can see. So by healing this man, Jesus is demonstrating that he has the right and the ability to forgive sins. 
But not only that, he is demonstrating that he has the power and the authority to deal with all of the consequences of sin, all of the mess that sin brings into your life and into this world, such as death and disease and sickness, such as broken relationships, such as insecurities and fears. He has come in all of those different things, all of these pressing needs that we feel, all of these uh, kind of immediate felt needs that we have, have all kind of come into this world hanging onto the coattails of sin. And in this encounter, Jesus is showing us that he is the great doctor who doesn't just treat the symptom, but can meet our greatest need and actually deal with the root cause by dealing with sin. You know, the incredible thing is that we have a God who loves us and cares for us and desires to bless us and to provide for us. He wants us to come to him with our felt needs, even if they're not our greatest needs. He will never turn us away. We don't have to make an appointment with him or join a queue. We can push through whatever obstacles or barriers or doubts or questions there might be to come to him, even at times when it might seem inappropriate, just as the guys did by digging a hole through a roof. And so often when we come to him in that kind of way with our felt needs, with our immediate needs, we experience God's provision and his healing work in our lives, which is fantastic. But at the same time, we've got to remember that we have a God who sees past our felt needs. He sees past the obvious things on the surface to what it is that we ultimately need. To what it is that will count not just now, but for all eternity. And that's where he wants to do the greatest work within your life. And that means that when you come to God in prayer and you bring your felt needs to him, you need to remember that God knows your needs better than you do. He knows what your greatest need is in the moment. And so he might respond to your prayers in a completely unexpected way. He might do something completely different to anything that you're expecting. But when he does that, you can also know that he only does it because he sees what your greatest need is. And he wants to act for your greatest good. And each time we see you know, miraculous healing and provision and transformation, we need to remind ourselves what it is that these great things are that are happening. They really, they merely highlight the fact that we have an amazing God who loves us and that the greatest miracle of all because of that love is that he would come and he would die in our place that we may receive forgiveness of sins. That he has all authority, that he has all power over the consequences of sins, that we can be freed from facing the judgment of death that he has provided a way for us to be forgiven, for us to have a relationship with him, for us to be able to enjoy him for all eternity. Do you know, I love to see miraculous answers to prayer, and I can bet most of you do too. I love to see miraculous provision, and I love to see miraculous healings. It's exciting, isn't it, when we see God work like that? It's exciting to see God at work transforming lives and, and, you know, in miraculous ways. And I want to see more of it. I want to see more of it in this church. I want to see more of it in this town across this county. You know, when God acts in these kind of powerful, visible ways, what we see here is that there's an undeniable demonstration of his power and his authority that makes people sit up and pay attention. That's why despite all of the questions, all of the arguments that might have been going on inside people as they were confused and they didn't know what was going on when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, we finish after he's healed the guy with them saying they're amazed and they praise God. Because that visible demonstration makes them sit up and pay attention. So I'd love to see more of that. But what I don't want is for us to be like the crowd or to be like the teachers of the law who are disappointed with just forgiveness. 
What I don't want is for us to be people who lose sight of what the greatest miracle really is. That meets the greatest need. That costs the greatest price. That brings the greatest blessing. And that lasts for all eternity. Do you know, spiritually I was, you could have once called me a dead man walking. You know, I was going through life effectively on death row. Just waiting for my day to come when I face the judgment seat of God. And to be honest, I deserve to be in that place. You know, I might not have done anything majorly wrong, but I had vastly missed the mark of God's perfection. And I was all set then to face the consequences of that fact for eternity. You know, and I could have gone through life in that moment experiencing miraculous healing and experiencing miraculous provision and knowing through my life health and wealth and the love of people and all of it would have been temporary and all of it would have counted for nothing. You know, my greatest need and the greatest miracle that I will ever know is that God would love me to the extent that he would choose to take the punishment that I deserved, to die in my place upon the cross. So that I might be forgiven. So that I might be removed from death row. And be able to look forward with confidence to an eternity with Jesus. You know, if you're here today and you haven't come to Jesus and put your trust in him and received this greatest miracle of forgiveness in your life, then I want to encourage you to make the most of this opportunity. I want to encourage you today to to be like the paralyzed man and his four friends who who know that Jesus is there and will do anything to get to him. They don't let any barriers stand in their way. So don't let any obstacle, any doubts, any questions, any fears of what other people might think get in the way of you coming to Jesus today. Grasp the offer of forgiveness that's available. Grasp it with both hands. Knowing that the truth is that forgiveness is your greatest need. And it will make the greatest difference in your life. And that it will last for all eternity. That forgiveness will not only mean that you can have a living and active relationship with God here and now, which in itself is phenomenal, but that you can enjoy that relationship forever. That you can have a confidence when you die. Now, if you want to find out more about how you can put your trust in Jesus, about how you can receive the forgiveness that's on offer, then I'd love you to to come and have a chat with me afterwards. I've got a little book here called Why Jesus. I'd love you to come and collect it, and that will tell you more about who this Jesus is and what it is that he's done for you. We'll also have a a group of guys who will be available at the front over there, and they would love to chat with you and to pray with you after the meeting as well. For those of you who have already received God's forgiveness in your life, we're going to come into communion. And I want to encourage you, as we come into communion, as you come and you take the bread and as you take the cup, I want to encourage you to come with the same thankfulness and wonder and awe and amazement that God has forgiven you as you would if you'd just seen a paralyzed man get up and walk. Because that's the greater miracle. The forgiveness you know in your life is far better than anything else. There is no greater miracle available to us than to receive God's forgiveness. And it is freely offered to us now as we put our trust in him.